Hey guys, how are you doing tonight? Good, how are you? <laughs> doing well. It's always awkward when I ask that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, Cole. And, and I'm going to probably screw up your name because I, I screw up everybody's name, but I've always assumed it was Whirl, like Whirly Gig because of your company. Is that correct? Well, sort of. It's Whirly. You're listening to Board Again Games, Season 1, Episode 9, the finale with special guest Cole Worley, where we talk about his games, game design, some books, and other great topics, including narrative games and Cole's new game, Oath, Chronicles of Empire and Exile. Uh, it, it was funny, oh. Drew and I, when we like engineered the name of the company, we thought this will help people pronounce their name right, but it didn't. <laughs> um, it like got us halfway there. I, I, don't, I don't get picky about it. My ancestors decided to anglicize the pronunciation, but not the spelling. Okay. So everything I get is their fault, and I don't mind. Oh, can, can I ask? Because I, I love hearing about like uh, where, where people are, are from. Oh, so I am like, I am split down the middle pretty evenly for, between like Welsh and an Anglican ancestry, and then uh, German, and my, my father's side um, comes from Baden-Baden and like the Blackwoods region. They're all watchmakers. You can get like a little whirly watch if you if you hunt for them. Okay, well that's fantastic <laughs> yeah. information. <laughs> okay, well cool. So um, we're going to talk about history and some games and things like that. Um, I, I thought we'd just start off by um, maybe if you would want to give an introduction for those that aren't familiar uh, with your past. Um, sure. um, so you're the designer of Root and PAX Premier and some other historical games, John Company um, and, and some stuff. But if people aren't familiar with your past, you did a PhD in history, correct? Uh, it, was, it was in English Lit, but I, my English work, okay. I had uh, history folks on my committee and it was, you know, I think English is a very broad field. And so some folks who work in it have kind of like one foot in different departments. And I definitely had like one foot in the history department. Yeah, yeah. I, I like uh, the um, cross-discipline stuff. That's, that's really cool. So English literature, that's different than, than what I, so you, you might have been um, surprised by my questions related to history then. Well, what, uh, so let's change it. And then if you're no, like, no, no, no. I love talking about history. You, okay. I mean, uh, well, kind of extemporaneous here, but tell me about what you, what started you down that, that path of history, but also English lit. If sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, and I got, you know, I, I took a lot of history courses in undergrad and I was always, I was always into it. Um, I don't know. I mean, there was always something magnetic about it. Uh, at my high school, I felt like all the charismatic teachers were all math teachers or history teachers. They were just pulled, pulled me into it. And there was something about the way that it organized the past. I mean, I think people will tell you that like, oh, history, it's about a story and, you know, it's very narrative driven. It's why, one of the reasons why students really like studying it, because if it's taught well, it feels like there's this like powerful narrative. But yeah. for me, there was this added element that it was like, it was like archaeology. It was like genealogy. It was about understanding the present moment mm. and trying to like figure out the different currents that, that course through the moment, because it's never... It's never over, right? We're never at the end of anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I, you know, growing up, I was always reading history books. I think I've probably read more history books than novels. It's like, what would I do for fun as I'm reading, I'm reading yeah. history books? And, uh, and, and so I just, you know, I was, always, I was always cooking on those. And then when I was, uh, I took, did my undergraduate at Indiana University in Bloomington, and they had a very strong history department. 
And so I, I remember the very, I didn't really, I had kind of a bad counselor. Uh, that's maybe not fair, but they didn't give me good guidance on what courses would be appropriate for a freshman to take. Okay. And so, and, and these were like right before they started erecting a lot of the prerequisite limits. And so one of the first classes I took as an undergrad was Byzantine history, which was an upper division course in the history department. And I had no idea what I was getting involved with and just got ruined by that class. But I was hooked after it. I wanted more. Like, even though I, I, I didn't do badly, but it, it, it wasn't easy. I just kept taking them. And it was, I, I always, I remember thinking, if I didn't have a history course on my, on my schedule, I always felt kind of unmoored. Um, and it, it, I was completely agnostic about period. They were all over the place. I was just jumping and trying to grab it, 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 as much as I possibly could. And then in, um, what ended up happening is as an undergrad, I, uh, I studied journalism, actually. I think that, that was where the, the interest in history probably came from. I was studying journalism and especially like, you know, I was, I thought I wanted to be an investigative reporter. It's, you know, I wanted to be a beat reporter and I wanted to rise through the ranks. and That was what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, I graduated right when the newspaper industry collapsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was, but but it was like before social media. Like I remember the Facebook news feed came out like the year I graduated from college, but it hadn't occurred to like a local news organization that they needed a Facebook page yet. So there were just no jobs for young journalists. Um, so I, I, did, I did some different kinds of work. But while I was in journalism school, I, I picked up um, a major in, in English and then some concentrations in history. And I was really interested in uh, the 20th century, globalization, the post-colonial period. And I was very involved in, uh, in different activist circles. And what happened was the more I got interested in it, the more it started pulling me into the 19th and 18th century. Oh, okay. As soon as you understand how something really horrible happened in the 40s, now you want, to under- you want to read the prequels, right? And you just keep, the problem with history is you get stuck in this chain and it keeps pulling you, pulling you back into the past. And I think if I, if I would have kept at it, I might, have, I might have ended up being like a, you know, studying the restoration or something. Huh, okay. <laughs> I feel that I um I realized I had a big empty spot for like knowing much about apartheid and then um started reading about it and then um just kept going back and then back and then got overwhelmed into the scramble mm-hmm. um and then and then right. recently I just was like well maybe I'll just start at like uh, re- recorded works or or like uh, there's a a podcast I listen to called Literature and History. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'll just, I'll start at the beginning. We'll read some uh, Gilgamesh and, yeah, and yeah, work, yeah. work our way forward. Cause it's just, yeah, it's, it's super interesting about um, that through line. That's a good podcast on NPR I've just <laughs> for history. Sorry. Yeah. Th- th- this is the way these conversations go. So um, you, you totally made me think of a side note, and if this catches you off guard, uh, that, that's fine. You don't have to answer this question, but um, gun germ, Guns, Germs, and Steel, sure. and then also, uh, I can't think of the name of the other book, but the, the Russian guy that used to study Beatles uh, from Yukon. Do you not know who I'm talking about? I, I, well, I mean, I know Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, okay. Anyway, Turkin? I don't know. See, this is where I get to terrible names, but um, both of them are like almost hated by historians because Correct. they have these grand kind of, of meta-narrative stories about history and civilization. Do you have a feeling on either one of them? 
personally? So I, well, I know Guns, Germs, and Steel and Collapse quite well. Yeah. And they're such interesting books. They're, they're, doing, they're doing historic work in like a very grand tradition. Like they're almost like 19th century style histories where he's like, I'm going to look, I mean, uh, Jared Diamond, that's the guy's name. Yeah, yeah. Diamond is like, he, he's, he's looking for some grand totalizing theory mm-hmm. that is going to line up everything. Right. And sometimes he's very right. I mean, one of the things about Guns, Germs, and Steel is there are, there are parts of that book that I think are very clarifying. Mm. And there are other parts, and I think Collapse is, is very guilty of this, where he is a little overzealous in his desire to find a through line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he starts stitching together all these different stories that like probably shouldn't be stitched together. And his argumentation gets really loose and wobbly. It's, I mean, I used to use that example, the example of those two books uh, for my undergrads, uh, because many of them had read parts of guns, germs and steel. Or like, mm-hmm. if you, if you write a book that resonates with people and is successful, they'll let you write anything. And mm-hmm. you're going to write a book like collapse. Right. Where you argue way off base and you get way, you know, you get way out and, in, in, you know, in front of your skis as the, the Minnesotans will, might say. Um, But I, you know, I I think that I try to be an omnivore when it comes to the history I'm reading. Like I do actually really admire writers who write in a more populist mode, who try to like write a, you know, and and sometimes uh, folks who've been through the Academy get, get, get in trouble for, you know, writing popular histories. Right. Um, And I do think that there's value in, I mean, one of my favorite histories of the United States I read last year uh, and it's the new one by Jill Lepore called these truths. And it's a fascinating history of the United States. I mean, and I, I, I think the first half of that book is stunning because what it basically it, it, it's a, it's like a diamond book. It is, it's got a theory of how the United States works and about the role of capital T truth in our systems of law and justice and in our national character and our institutions and the places where those institutions fail us and how we're wrestling with this concept. And then when she gets into the 20th century, like she's obviously looking at what's going to happen with, you know, the Republican party and Trump and thinking about the current moment we're in our fractured media landscape is like that. That's her kind of coda. But I think she, um, she gets too specific and polemical in the second half and her argument doesn't quite work as well, but the first half of that book is staggeringly brilliant. And so I actually, I think there's a lot of value for historians saying like, no, I'm I want to make an argument. I'm going to like, I'm going to be like, like Macaulay or something and make these sweeping arguments. So I think there is a lot of power to that too. So on, on that note, do you have research interests still, or are you just doing the game thing mainly? And well, that, that, that is a great question. So I, um, that, that is a good question. It's so funny. I was at my, my parents' house very briefly this summer and uh, took with me my box of dissertation books because there's a couple chapters for my dissertation that I kind of want to publish. Uh-huh. And I start thinking to myself that I might have time to actually get them ready for a peer-reviewed <laughs> journal. They were very close when I stopped because what happened was the, the academic job market, I thought I was going to um, get a position somewhere. It like looked pretty good. Uh, and then it, it fell through as so often it happens. And then right when I was getting ready to like gather all my papers and get ready to launch into the, the second round of like going out into the world, um, 
I was in contention for this game design job. Okay. And then that, so like my, my dissertation defense, it's such a funny character because I had a great time because it was so low stakes for me. Because I, I walked in being like, well, I think I already have a job and it doesn't have to do with anything here. And I like all of the people on my committee and I really like the product I did. And so they were arguing with me, but in the way that like, if you're in a low stakes environment, you can argue better. You don't like it. So like tight. Um, I had like a great defense. It was really fun. Um, and then afterwards they're like, okay, cool. Like, let's get your stuff ready. You guys get to the next step. And I was like, well, actually now I'm going to announce to you that I'm probably going to be leaving the Academy and going off and doing this weird game thing because the university has been around for a couple hundred years. Uh, the game industry is only maybe a couple dozen, a couple dozen years old. So I don't know if the game industry, how long it's going to last, but I'd rather spend my thirties there. Um, but I do try to stay current. I mean, I think what, what, uh, I mean, well, here's how I think about it. Um, I, I try to stay somewhat current in my field. Most of these, I'm just really interested. I study the 19th century. Um, and so I am, I, you know, I'll read like the newest issue of Victorian studies. Um, almost always they come out quarterly. It's not that yeah. big of a, it's like you're getting buried in New Yorkers or something. Um, but outside of that, I always have like two or three areas of research that I'm really pushing on that I become like quasi obsessed with. And so you, my, my reading is kind of divided in four ways where I have like a research area that I'm like really gunning for. And then I have like some fiction that I'm reading and then I have like general interest stuff, which is like completely eclectic all over, all over the place. And then there's like the audiobooks, which like don't even sort of don't count or whatever. But I, I, I mean, I almost like my wife makes fun of me for it because I will rotate like every day. It's Monday, it's book club night. So I'm reading whatever the book club thing is. And then Tuesday is like, it's the, my research area night. Uh, so like something I'm, I'm, I'm reading right now for the past year or two, I've been reading a lot about American reconstruction because I'm potentially going to be preparing a game on the subject. Uh, and it's a very tricky subject. And so I recently read uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s uh, Stony Road, which is fabulous. I'm giving uh, Eric Foner's big book on reconstruction a second read. Uh, there's a few, there's, there's, there's a couple other kind of closely related to those that I'm going for. And then, you know, unrelated, I'm reading like a history of dinosaurs. And then I'm reading this book about the Bible right now. That's really fascinating that I can go into, but I've, I, I don't know. I like to be, I don't know. I'm just a curious kid. I'd like to be nibbling at lots of stuff at once, but usually I'll have like one or two areas where I'm going really, really deep. And then a couple areas where I'm just kind of like skating on the surface and kind of seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that relates to my next question for you is how do you avoid, uh, <laughs> well, so you're reading all that and you're thinking about, Oh, I could use this in the game. How do you avoid uh, trivializing the historical events in a game? Um, actually, that's one of the ways I first found PAX, Premier was there was one of the most interesting board game reviews that I had seen. I don't, I don't even remember who did it at the time, but, but they, they were like, this is a complicated subject and some people aren't going to be happy with this game because it's a complicated subject. And that made me want to play the game more um, and then read some more. And I, I got to read more um, just, uh, I, I, again, I'm terrible with names. So I don't remember, sure, sure, sure. remember what I read at the time, but when I first found the game, I, I, I read um, some books and articles about the history of Afghanistan that, that I, I wasn't uh, familiar with. And um, just going through that, like how, how do you avoid that? Cause I'm sure there's even more um, 
in any, whether it's American Reconstructionism or British colonialism or whatever, there's things in there that a, a, a specialist is going to go, hey, you trivialize this. Yeah, well, it, it's yeah, a game, ahead. right? I mean, at, right. at one level, if I go to, if I go to someone who knows the period really well and who's spent their life, you know, working on it, and I tell them, well, I designed a funny board game. It's on Kickstarter. Yeah. You want to take a look at it. They're, they're going to think I'm making shoots and ladders and, and really trying to, to trivialize it. So I, in my approach, uh, pedagogy is kind of everything. Ga these games are teaching instruments. Yeah. And the, the, the table, so tabletop then becomes like a form that I'm working in, like a lesson plan or something. Mm -hmm. And every lesson plan has some things that it's going to be very good at and some things it's going to be very bad at, right? And so when I think about the game form, uh, the game form is really good at introducing players to pressures. Everybody has to understand all the pressures because if you don't understand the pressures that a playing position is under, you can't play the game, which is just another way of saying uh, you have to know all the rules to play the game. Sure. Now, this is different from a video game because a video game can hide pressures. Mm -hmm. So you can feel under pressure in a video game, but like not know exactly where that pressure is coming from. Um, so, uh, the fact that board games are known systems is really important because essentially that makes them a lot like a model, which kind of yeah, puts me yeah. like in the world of like economics, right? Or sociology, you have to build a model of something. The other thing that I think games are really good at doing is generating sympathy. Um, you are going to be asked to relate with people mm -hmm. and that's a very, very powerful tool for education. It's also a very dangerous tool. Because if you ask them to relate with the wrong people or for the wrong reasons, pretty soon people can be playing a game and getting something very different from it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I'm thinking about a project, I spend a lot of time thinking about the model and making sure it is accurate and well-built and it has, it's okay that if it has argument. I mean, I'm not pretending to be objective about any of this stuff. Um, I, I come to every project with my own biases. Um, and so every game is argumentative, but I want that it to be a model that is well vetted and makes sense. And then it's also important that in that argumentation, the way the game is directing sympathy is to some kind of higher aim. So I'll give an example of this is um, a game I did about on the opium wars called an infamous traffic. Mm -hmm. And in, that's a tricky subject. Uh, yeah. And originally I designed it as an asymmetric game. I wanted uh, some players to play smugglers, some players to play the Chinese government, and then some players to play the small British trading firms. But what I found was it put the players on an uneven uh, moral plane. The players who were playing the Chinese government who were trying to stop the opium trade mm -hmm. uh, were assuming a kind of moral high position, which is not unwarranted at all. But the British, but if it within the space of one game, the British players would stop behaving in ways that made any kind of historic sense because they didn't want to be the bad guys. So in order to fix this problem, I made everybody the bad guys. Okay. And then was very clear in the rulebook materials and how the game is presenting that you are playing the bad guys and you need to understand what engine powered the opium wars, which is respectability politics in back home in England, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically all the horrible things that you're doing in infamous traffic are for petty social prizes back home, like a nicer house, 
right? Or a lavish fox hunt or something. And it's important to cast them in that light because when you read the letters of people who are working at like the Russell firm or something, that's what they're interested in. Yeah. They're, not, they're not telling their, their companions back home about like this good deal that they just scored or right. this war they're thinking about ginning up. They're asking about the London season. Right. And they're asking about these like lavish gifts they're giving each other. So like if their minds are trained on those things, I want to make sure the model also trains its attention there. So, and, and all that to say is like these games are invitation. I mean, I in, invitations for argument, somebody can play a Pax Premier and say, I don't think this is fair to like the Pashtu or like, I don't think this is fair to the Persians. Yeah. And then I want to, I want to present a very different version of the whole of the whole period from the Persian lens. Heck, I mean, you could play, I mean, Pax Premier is a game about Afghanistan seated in an Afghan, an Afghan perspective. But I think that a player who wanted to make a, like to do a, a traditional British and Russian geopolitical read of the great game mm-hmm. could do one. And, and it, it isn't any better or worse. Well, it might be worse, but <laughs> I, I'd be happy to engage in on its own merits. And in fact, there is a game. Uh, what is the name of the first one? It's just simply called the great game. It was published by Legion games. And it is a very like Twilight Struggle style, top down, 19th century geopolitics, traditional war game. Yeah. And it's a completely reasonable way of viewing the, 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 the period. Yeah, no, I, it, it's interesting because as we were talking, I was thinking about like, um, and the, this is a topic we're going to come back to next season mm-hmm. for us, but like the, the qualia of a game, like what, what, it, what it feels like mentally. Sure. Um, and it's interesting that you use the word pressure um, because thinking about a game, like I love GMT games, but like playing Gallipoli 19, uh, 17 or whatever it is, um, playing something like that versus playing Pax Premier, the feel of the pressure is completely different. And there's really no empathy for the World War One soldiers yeah. <laughs> in the one, but it is completely like a tact- tactical, logistical Mm-hmm. Uh, pressure that's happening in that versus what you get to feel when you play uh, a game like uh, Pax Premier. So I, I appreciate you putting it that way. And it, it definitely comes through in the way it's designed. So um, before I just dominate all, all the questions here, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to yeah, get in here, Ryan. Yeah. yeah I'm going to switch over to Ryan, some of his questions for you. Cause uh, I, I know he, he, um, he had some game design questions and we're kind of getting into the, the meat of that right here. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, and you're kind of touching on this too, which is exciting. Um, like one of my big questions is like, just how are, how do you decide on the project you're going to be mm-hmm. focusing on, especially since you um, um, are, I forgot the word, you know, since you like to learn and yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you have many different interests. So, well, the um, it's funny. I have uh, I have a lot of friends from um, my college years and and after that are in lots of doing lots of interesting jobs. And uh, one of one of my good friends is in the music industry, and he's 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 done very well. And he, out of all my my friends, he is the one that I feel like when I talk about work with, with him, we see most eye to eye. Which is to say, at the beginning, you're hungry for any project that will provide you infrastructure to work. Right. So no matter what it is, if as long as they're going to give you some resources to work, you're just so hungry to get your voice out there, you'll, you'll, you'll take it. But one of the things that, 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 that happens, and it certainly happened to me, 
is you start to recognize the high opportunity cost of every project. Hmm. A game takes a long time to make. And I have no illusions about this. I know that I will hopefully get to make like maybe 10 games over the course of my career, maybe less. And I want to make sure they're good. And I want to make sure I spend my time well. And so when someone asks me to make a game for their like movie property, um, I have to think very carefully if like, I want to spend one of my games on it, right? Like this is, you know, the, the, you know, I, I can't sum it up better than that. Like the opportunity cost of these projects is very, very, very high. So the qualification I use when thinking about a game is I just ask myself a very simple question, which is, does it feel urgent? Which is, if I don't do it, will someone else do it? And if the answer is someone else is going to do it, then I don't want to race them. I feel, I feel great relief. It means I don't have to spend my time making a World War II game. Great. I can go work on a different, a different, set, a different thing. Um, and, and so it's funny, you know, sometimes when people are pitching us games at Leader, uh, back when I used to go to conventions, uh, when people would be pitching us a game, they would say like, oh, they, they would try to bait you. They'd be like, oh, Renegade's looking at this. They're, they're pretty excited. <laughs> what do you think? You know, you better act fast. And I'd say, oh, great. I'm so happy. Go to Renegade. <laughs> it's just like, I, I have no interest now. You've, I, you know, I was, might have been a little interested before, but now I'm just not. Uh, because I know that your, your game is going to get made. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, so like the urgency, the urgency is everything. And then the, the one other thing I'll say to that is I usually have like two little conversations going on in, in my notes. I write a lot about my process, uh, both stuff that gets published and also stuff that I just write. I have a running design journal that I write in every, when I'm working on a project, I write in every day. When I'm in between projects, it might be every few days. I'll, I'll write a little about what I'm thinking about. And Whenever, I'm, whenever I play a new game, you know, if, I, if I play a game at lunch, like we've been playing a lot of Undaunted at work during lunch, and you know, I'm writing about Undaunted in my little game journal where I'm like, oh, it does these things really well. I don't really like how it does this thing. And what will happen is I'll start having ideas. Like, I wonder if you could do a game that did X, this like, thing that I haven't really seen done. So like with Oath, one of the questions behind Oath was like, can you build a PAX-style game without a card market like that's a very like that's a mechanical puzzle what does a pack style game look like without a card market turns out that's a crazy tricky problem also like what if you build a game without a card without card flow like if a packs game has a deck that has acts built into it and then it runs through and it's very high turnover a packs game is going to need to go through like 50 or 60 cards yeah. could you do a game in like 20 cards that felt as big right and so that's a mechanical question. That doesn't say anything about theme. And then on the other hand, I'm thinking about stories and that might be a historic period or it might just be like a narrative trope that isn't being answered by the current game landscape, the games that are being published. And every once in a while, two things will like click together. So with, with Premiere, the very short version of Premiere is I wanted a game about something outside of Empire. So not a game about the Brits conquering things. Mm -hmm. but a game about a center of power on the edge of empire. So that was the thematic interest. And then the mechanical interest was, I wondered if you could make a tableau builder be a portfolio game mm -hmm. where you were trying to like, okay, I'm building my tableau, but also I have three shares of British power and I can pivot to two shares of Afghan power. Mm -hmm. And like that very rough idea 
was what like I mean everyone saw those kind of two like two tumblers and a lock and they'll line up and then the pin can go through and the game starts to starts to take off. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. I told you I had long answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's just a, a eloquent answer. I'm I'm just uh, um, you know I'm over here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well done. It's not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we were we were both fanboying a little bit when you said yes to this. App. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, uh, what what I found really interesting is how similar your answer was. I, I've talked to a couple game designers and, and per, before, the, even though this is our first one for the show. Um, how similar your answer was about like, oh, somebody else is already making that. That's great. Not in, in a in a harmful way. Truly in a benevolent way of like okay you're yeah. doing that wonderful i don't have to worry about that anymore um like i, I think that sense of, of when, when you know i have the freedom to say no mm-hmm. is, is a wonderful thing in, in any um in any career but especially in game design since there's five thousand games coming out if you, if you if you can be like yep that's one thing i don't have to worry about at all anymore. i am in such a lucky position because i do feel like at least for the next few years we'll see if things hold I get to pick my projects and I try to exercise a lot of discretion because kind of nothing bothers me more than someone who has a lucky break, just absolutely going ham and like trying to publish every single game they could possibly think of. And it just bums me out because what's happening in situations like that is they might have a long backlog of games that they've been storing up and they get a break and they get a platform and they just start jumping them out. And what bothers me about that, just from a, a, cra- a perspective of craft, is they should be learning, right? Like, they should be learning and improving their, their craft. And what often happens is they spit a bunch of things out, and the quality goes down and not up, right? Right. right. And, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I, won't, I won't pick anybody in particular, but this is just, I, I, this is to me like a very common trope. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I try to be really careful about it because I, you know, I, well, well, well yeah. saying it in a positive way about your games is I didn't love this game at first. I do now. <laughs> um, but I, I think critically. It, well, it grew on me. And then also what I, I grew to love is, is the fact that, uh, that as more expansions came out, and, and what was fascinating was to see you and Patrick talk about it the other day, um, your thought process about what was going on with the expansions about like, here's the one with the, the quirky little things and here's the one if you want the expansion, if you want a solid game with some different <laughs> choices and stuff. The fact that you had actually thought through your expansions and they weren't expansions just for the sake of expansions, but they were expansions for the particular situation that you wanted to happen. And then you made it all come together in a, a really good way. It, it, it just grew my enjoyment of that game. And, yeah. and, so go ahead. Yeah. No. Uh, so what I was going to say was that we try a leader, and this is this is true in a lot of projects I work on, to be really mindful of the fact that people are only going to, you know, there might be more games coming out, and there are certainly more people playing, but we want to be very mindful of like our product line because the most common model. So this is like business chat. We've exited history chat. We can come back to history chat, but now it's business chat. The yeah. most common model in this industry is publish as much as you can. Maintain a reasonably high standard of quality, which is to say uh, your games have rules and the rules work, right? And know that the one successful game 
is going to pay for the next like 40 mistakes. Right. And you want to try to get yourself on a footing where you can kind of, and I, we usually call this like the, the, the churn model, yeah. which is not fair to the many good and well-intentioned folks who are running this way, but yeah. they're on, they're on a treadmill. They've got to spit out X number of games. Uh, the model at leader and the model at Whirligig and some other places that I've been affiliated with is all about the long tail, which is, you know, we're going to do three games. We want two of them to get a second print run and maybe the third one will get a third print run. But we structure everything, our pricing structure, our retail strategy, everything is around the notion that if this, if these games just pay for their own creation, mm -hmm. that's enough. And we continue to move on. Yeah. We don't have a huge amount of overhead. We don't have like an owner, like up in the, up in the woods, like just chilling out and taking big dividends. Right. Like our whole premise is if we go broke in a decade, and all that we have to show for it is the decade of made games and the fact that we were able to maintain a middle-class life during those years, that will have been a very good decade spent. At least that, that's, that's my approach. Other people at the company may, may have, you know, more dollar signs in their eyes. But I, I very much think about it like when I went to graduate school, my, um, my, one of my mentors, a uh, brilliant, brilliant professor named Josh Marsh at IU, uh, I, I was thinking about it and she said, uh, the thing about grad school is that when you're 30 – all of your friends will own homes and you won't. Mm -hmm. And you just need to be comfortable with that. that like you're, you're delaying your career in such a way that is going to put you in poverty for about a decade. And I mean, I had two kids in grad school and we were on food stamps for a couple of those years. It was tough. Yeah. Um, you know, we had lots, lots of rice and beans those, yeah. those many years in Austin. And I have no regrets about it. And I, and I have a fair bit of student loans from the whole thing too, because I always went into grad school being like, I am so lucky that I can, that I, that I get to spend my twenties talking about books and reading and teaching yeah. and whatever I do after that period, if I, I mean, I, I mean, I thought, you know, even before the game thing I, and I was thinking like, do I have to, should I go work at a bank? Do I need to go find like a marketing firm? I, I really had no idea what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And, and, but, but even thinking that, even knowing that wherever I was going to start, it would be on the bottom rung. I didn't mind. I didn't mind that investment because I got to spend my twenties in a way that was really enriching. And so that's kind of how I look at, at the, the, this time in, you know, in the, uh, in the game industry. Like, so the way I think about oath, oath is, uh, what I often say about oath is that it's far too big for any small studio to take on, but far too risky for any big studio. Yeah, it's just it's just big. It's just a complicated, big, big, big game. And in fact, uh, our editor we like caught a very small errata. It's it's like trivial. Yeah. Um, but uh, our editor sent me a message today. He's like, oh, I feel that like imposter syndrome come in because we have this like tiny print errata. And I said, you know, one one nice thing about working on a product like Oath is that um, when you're on the you're doing something that's never been done, and so when you're out on the bleeding edge of something you can't be an imposter because there's no one that you're imposting. <laughs> there's just no one out here we're pretending to be because our whole attitude about oath was we have these resources, we have this goodwill. Let's spend all of that capital and make something completely wild. And if it collects dust and is discovered in 20 years, when some kid goes into his uncle's game closet, 
Like that's pure unalloyed magic. Yeah. Um, and so like, it's not really about like trying to make a new route or trying to like shoot the moon twice or anything like that. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm, I'm speaking entirely for myself. Patrick's a very savvy businessman. I'm sure he's, you know, got like a 10 year plan or something that has us all retired. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna because we're limited on time here. And we were, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. See, I told you. No, no, no. no you're fine. I'm gonna let Ryan ask the next. I'm, I'm uh, digging it. I mean, I, I have. We could we could talk forever because you're making me think of tons of questions, and this is awesome. And I do want to say before Ryan asks his next question, though, like it's been really, really evident that Oath is a passion project for you. Um, I, I'm looking forward to trying it out. I, I will say, and I don't know that you care or not. I'm, I'm trying to give myself really low expectations. About good, 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 good. You should. So that I can be pleasantly surprised once again. Um, yeah. I mean, the way I think, Oh, it's funny because oath is, oath is it, passion project is like, it, it looks like one, but what it actually is, is a very large wager. Mm. So it's like oath is a content rich game that approaches the legacy format and a very, with a very different kind of strategy. Okay. And maybe that check will clear. And maybe it won't, but it's an interesting thing to attempt. It's like a, you know, it, it is a, it is a, like, it is a concept piece in like the, the, the most open like way that that, that can be used. Um, and I think it, it's right to come at it with, with low expectations. <laughs> I mean, I, you always want low expectations, right? I'm never, I'm not going to argue that away, but it, um, it is, it is such its own thing. I think um, I, I can see a lot of people liking it a lot. And a lot of people absolutely hating it. And I'll be delighted by their hatred, of course. I mean, you, you have to, I, I, uh, every morning, it's very short. Uh, every morning I read the comments for everything I've worked on. And uh, some mornings I have a little spring in my step after that. And some mornings it's a bracing experience. Yeah. And, uh, but I do it because it, it grounds me. It like, hey, uh, somewhat, many people are not going to like the stuff that you do. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And you should understand that critique learn from the parts you can learn from and then throw away the parts that are, you know, them Absolutely. being mad because like mice can't shoot a bow or something. Right. Uh, it is not when you're looking. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ryan gets it. <laughs> so Ryan, what, what did you want to ask next? I mean, yeah, that's one of my big things is like negative feedback and like managing, like I'd, I've, I've read, um, the comment sections. I'm not on social networking anymore because um, I can't do it. No, um, I, I, I straight put Facebook on a site blocker. Like I, I just can't do it. I don't care. I, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, you're you're like in the you know you're you're a name now that people right. talk about and like yeah like and you read that every morning and that just uh, that absolutely blows my mind. I am mean, the only person I know in my industry that does that. Uh, I thought it was a common practice and I started talking to people about it. I'm like, Oh, you know, yeah, you're reading the comments and they're like, Oh, I never read negative reviews. And I'm like, what? I thought everyone I thought this was the bitter pill you had to swallow every morning. It was the price. You know, a couple of people I know that they're like, it's like a movie. You make the movie and you never look back. Yeah. I, I hate that because I know those people are lying when they say like, Oh, I never read the reviews. I'm like, yeah, you're lying. There's no way. There's just no way. I can't imagine. I don't know. I, well, I also, I think about designs as like, it's a conversation, right? And I always tell folks when they ask me about like, oh, the success of Root, the thing that I say that's so heartening about it is like, there's always a breakthrough hit. That's fine. There's always a game that, that does really well. Root, we did, I didn't think it was going to be that game. I didn't plan on Root being that game. But it was heartening 
as someone who loves interactive games, more older school games maybe, to walk around the halls of Gen Con that year and see people crouched on the floor. Gen Con used to not have very many tables for playing, if you've been, you know. Um, And they're throwing dice and shouting and yelling and laughing and having arguments about the game. And I thought, oh, like, I'm getting to steer the conversation a little bit. This is my, you know, in the same way that Wingspan comes out, and then, of course, we're going to have lots of nature games because people want to capture some of that heat. And it isn't, like, people sometimes will say, like, oh, all those copycats, all those Wingspan copycats. And they're, they're completely missing the point because I'm like, don't you get what Elizabeth did? Like, she made grownups more adult. She steered the conversation about what games can look like. Yeah. And, and so that, to me, that, 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 the, the thrill of the whole publishing rat race and everything is that when you, have a, when you have an audience who's interested in your work, you get to participate in the steering of the conversation. And it's never unilateral. It's always like there are a lot of hands on that steering wheel. And maybe the way you want to turn it is like not the way the larger conversation could go, right? It might be that I go off on a weird little detour, which like Oath to me is the picking up of a, of a design thread or like, that, that's a weird metaphor. It's like a, it, it was like a limb in if the, the, ga- the great game design tree. It was like a limb from the 80s that was dead about a way to think about campaign games. And I'm thinking about a game called Barbarian Kingdom and Empire, but there's a lot oh, yeah. of them. And it's like this limb was dead. No one was making games like this. And when Rob Davio and those folks started doing legacy games, they had their strategy. And I kind of wanted to go back to the, you know, down the tree game design, back in time a little, and knock that limb and be like, I don't know if this limb is actually dead. Maybe there's this other way. Now, it could turn out that limb is dead. (laughs) And the little treehouse I built on it will crash down. That's fine, too. But, like, to me... Reading the negative reviews is part of that process. And I also, I mean, I think um, I, I, I've written game reviews and, and I, I, I like reading criticism as much as, and I mean that like in the, the, the very broad sense. I love reading essays about film and books. Like my, when, when I get like my, mag, my New Yorker in the mail, I, this is second New Yorker message. It's just because I'm, I'm behind right now. And so all afternoon, I've just been catching up on my subscription. Um, but the, I always read Talk of the Town first and then I read the critics yeah. and then I'll read the, the feature pieces. But I love reading, even if it's like a dance company, I don't know anything about. I love reading that stuff. Um, and so if writing a negative review is hard. It's really, really tough. And so if someone wants to write a negative review of Root, I am so here for it. I love reading Root negative reviews because they're grappling with something that's tricky and they know they're going to get some hate, some blowback. So they're doing a kind of brave thing. And oftentimes the reason why they don't like the game is because it is fundamentally out of alignment with their taste. Mm -hmm. And those reviews are like the easiest ones to read because you give yourself an easy pass. You're like, oh, well, this, just, this wasn't the game for you. But every once in a while, I'll get a review of Root about um, its narrative. And I'll think like, this guy, he, he, he sees a problem with the game. It doesn't make the game less fun or good or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he's making a reasonable critique. There's a, a talk by a guy whose name I forgot. West, Scott Westerfield, maybe? I don't know. It was a, a shucks t- talk. And it was called uh, Victory Points Are Evil or Victory Points Are Bad Design was the name of the talk. And he used Root as an example of a game that doesn't know where its climax is. Mm -hmm. 
because you can win the game by crafting a boot and that feels anticlimactic. And uh, I, I think, so I, I think he's picking up on an interesting thing about root, which is uh, sometimes the players don't know when the climax is. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Those thoughts, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that. What, one of the problems with victory point systems is that the games end at funny times. They, may, they might not end at the moment of, like, dramatic power. Uh, and Oath doesn't have victory points, in part because I wanted to think about, like, what does it look like a game that really is narrative first mm -hmm. and that is going to end like a bolt of lightning every single time? And that's, that's like what, how Oath works. Like it is a game that like, it ends precisely the moment it's supposed to end. Um, and what we found when people play it is some folks love that and other folks hate it because they're like, well, but I was just kidding. And it was like, no, you weren't in the court when the king got poisoned and he snatched the crown and this dude just won. And no one cares about the farm you were trying to build out in the hinterland. <laughs> Whereas Root would be like, well, let's see how many points that farm's worth now. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, there, there's some choices, but there's a, there's just so much to be gained from reading negative reviews. Everyone should do it. Ryan, do you have any other, cause we have just a few minutes left. Do you have any yeah, you got, you got 10, 15. I'll, I'll, I'll I go a little over. Well, uh, I, I just yeah. go, go ahead, Ryan. Did you have one? Uh, well, I mean, we touched on it too, with the, the, the games that you just have shelved. If you've got, mm -hmm. if you, if you got eight to 10 for, for your career, we're going to have like what 50 to 5,000 ideas just. Yeah, that, that is a good question. How many, how many are getting thrown away? Um, I am, have gotten better about not throwing them away lately where um, I think one thing that happens is you get better as you get more games under your belt is you start designing in a way and you realize like, Oh, this is actually like a fundamentally bad idea. Like I thought this was going to lead to a game, but it's not. And so I'm going to throw it away. Uh, and usually the, the way I end up designing, um, I design very backwards from most designers. So uh, the vast majority of designers that I know, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with this. This is my own idiosyncrasy. Um, the vast majority of designers I know start with a mechanical conceit, some cool worker placement trick or an auction style or something. And then they hunt for an appropriate theme and then they build the game around the union of those two. Mm -hmm. I start, from a system perspective where I have like a story I want to tell. I have a set of pressures to bring back that word and in that system that I want to build. And then I'm trying to build a game that creates that system. And so uh, some playtesters I exhaust very, because they're like, I signed up for a worker placement game, but now we're playing an auction game. Like, what are you doing? And like late in the playtesting, I'll, I'll just take a big chunk of the design and toss it away. Um, because I, so I, I iterate on mechanism very, very, very fast in development because I'm like, Oh, this isn't, this isn't the right system. Throw it away. So like oath is interesting in that regard because there were many oaths oath. The oath that exists is like oath nine or 10, depending on how you count the major versions. And I was like, I had this idea for the game and I had these mechanical problems and I would build like a mechanical treatment that I thought was a good idea. And it just wouldn't quite fire or like it, it the, the bigger problem was, the games worked, but they were fundamentally too small. They weren't uh, adaptable. And it, the whole thing about Oath is it has to be adaptable. So if the game failed in that qualification, I like threw it away. And sometimes there were a few good ideas I could kind of billet and like take away those like, oh, well, you know, this action structure I really like and I might use that in the future. So I'll like, I'll, I'll scrap it for parts. Um, so like a lot of games are dying. A lot of games are kind of falling by, by, the, by the wayside. 
Um, my hit rate now is pretty high. I think I have like probably a, a 0.5 batting where I'll work on a game and if it doesn't like, usually I can iterate myself to the game that I want to make. And I, I mean, by the end of the process, it, it almost, it will almost never look like the first version of that game. Uh, but every once in a while I do start a game and I'm like, oh, actually this just fundamentally won't work. And this is a total dead end. Um, now in terms of like themes and general mechanisms that I want to be working in, I have tons of those. They're like, I, um, I, I am, I'm so deep. I, I'm reading um, children of Ash and Elm right now about the Vikings. And there's so many like quirky, weird things in Viking sociology that I'm like, Oh, that would be a great game. What a, what a cool, like I want like these weird temple rites that Vikings do. It's so fascinating. Or like, mm-hmm. I want to do, you know, like, yeah, the, 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 there's, the, there's so much. Right. And so most of those though, I'm like, ah, this is probably a non-starter or someone else like Viking theme is totally overdone. Other people are going to take this kind of stuff. And so I, I'm pretty good at just kind of discarding those things. Um, I would really, so as I mentioned, I was reading this book about the history of the Bible, uh, which is great by this guy named John Barton. Uh, it's, it's fabulous. If you like grew up in a religious household or if you're currently religious or if you're not religious, but you're interested in it, it's a great book. Um, but I'm like, you know, doing a lot of studies on like New Testament apologetics and textual history and like Q and all the, the relation of the gospels and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, it would be so cool to do a game about text, like a deduction game about textual history. That'd be awesome. And that is, boy, I'm not going to sell that game anywhere. Um, and so like that, it just kind of floats and who knows, maybe it'll turn to something, maybe not. Um. Did that answer your, your question, Ryan? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to end on this, and it's up to you when you want to – Yeah, you, I, you, I can do a couple more questions then. You know, no, no, no. This is the, the question. Um, have you ever heard um, – when you were talking about narrative, two games, and earlier it came up, uh, King's Dilemma, I'm sure you've heard of that one. Yep, yep. Um, and then also Holding On, The Troubled Life of Billy Kerr uh, by Hub. Have, have you heard of that one? Okay, wait. Say the other one again. The, the second one is called Holding On, The Troubled Life. Oh, of, yeah, yeah, Holding On. Sure, yeah, sure. Billy Kerr. Yeah. So um, the first one, it, it, it's I think it's a good game because of the way it does its narrative stuff and that you're forced in, into mm-hmm. – uh, not it's not empathetic, but you're forced into making decisions you wouldn't otherwise make that might put you as the moral bad guy, right? So mm-hmm. there, there's that one, and, and it moves its narrative along that way. Um uh, I think the more interesting one of the two is holding on in, in terms of, oh, like, interesting. is it a good game? Well, you know, what, what do you mean by good game? It, it does probably really well what it's designed to do. Right. Uh, of mm-hmm. making you think, okay, if I, if I experience these things, then, then um, I am doing what the, it, it, like it's, it's more of an experience than a game. Sure. So um, there's been a lot of video games that have been really good at that, of having us like uh, empathize with the person who's, uh, who, who we're playing as, right? Um, as you talk about the narrative experience of Oath, um, how close do you think a board game can get? So that, that's what I'm getting at. With yeah, 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 sure, sure, how, sure. How, how close can a board game truly get to the narrative experience that uh, a more full uh, – 
since thing uh, experience like, like a video game where, you know in VR and so forth. So it's it's so yeah. funny because I think uh, most of the people playing board games, well, most everybody who's living right now is playing video games of some description. It might be Candy yeah. Crush on their phone. It might be, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what's that game called? Like going home from home. Anyway, um, oh, yeah, yeah or, or, you know, over dinner, maybe it's the new Call of Duty, right? There, there's a lot of different narrative experiences out there. And so when we're thinking about narrative in games, the tendency is to use video games as a reference point. Mm -hmm. So I've played a lot of King's Dilemma, mm -hmm. and it's good. Uh, but it, King's Dilemma is a lot like a video game. It reminds me of Reigns. Yeah. It, like it's, it seems like it's pretty clearly modeled on Reigns, which is fine. Reigns is great. It's an open narrative space. It also reminds me of a game, another game I love, 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 called The King of Dragon Pass, an old game, uh, which is fabulous. And if you like The King's Dilemma but don't have the group, just get yourself a copy of Six Ages, which is the follow-up to King of Dragon Pass because it will, it will tickle all the same, all the same parts. Um, but that is a very novelistic way of telling stories, and mm -hmm. it's um, and in a way cinematic. Right. Games are not either of those things, in my opinion. Board games can do those things, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think they do them very well. Uh, so, like Pandemic Legacy, I always tell people is a better TV show than it is a game. Yeah, uh, and it isn't to say that it's a bad game. It's not. Davio and his crew did a, great, did a great job on it. But it is, to me, it is fundamentally kind of on rails. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of those interactive, like, movies you might go to at, like, well, I'll, I'll drop a Midwestern reference, like a King's Island or something, where yeah. they put you in a chair and, like, zoo, zoo, and you, you, know, you feel it. So you're, you're feeling these pressures, but, like, everything the game can do, it knows it can do. It's fundamentally scripted, right? And Oath is... So not that, that I think th th this is the thing that I'm always like uh, tricky about because, because sometimes when folks get excited about the game and talk to me about it, they'll describe it as if it's like super pandemic legacy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. It's like Spelunky. It's, it is, it is totally like emergent class driven design class in the, in the programming sense where you have all these object classes, right. That behave in different ways with input, put in conjunction. And so w when I think about the, the narrative that tabletop games can do, it's a lot more like theater. It's a lot more like, um, uh, what is the word I want? Is it impromptu? Is that it? No. Well, I mean, do you mean impromptu or extemporaneous? They're slightly different. They're slightly different, but, slightly different, but I guess I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, oh, improvisation, not impromptu. My God, oh, okay. it's okay. late here. Improv. It's a lot more like improv. Okay. And so it creates a set of dramatic tensions. It's more like role playing where like you have the, the, the rules of the system are set. The actions of the players are set. And to me, the, the, the reason why, so I like, I tend to avoid co-op games mostly because I think that the, the drama is better if the players are focused around a victory condition. It's a better engine. It's a better generator. Mm -hmm to put into a narrative. You know, I, I want to play like, I want to watch improv, competitive improv. You know what I mean? Like there needs to be some incentive structure that is going to power it because it's just going to amp up the whole experience. Um, and I think that is a place where tabletop games can go much deeper in their narrative craft than movies or books. Hmm. They can do something much, much, much deeper because there are games I've played of Mafia growing up 
that I remember like books that I've read. Hmm. And in the same way, like in the same way that people will remember memorable sports matches and they'll be like, Oh, do you remember that Notre Dame game? And they'll, they'll talk about it. Right. right. Like that, like the game form is a very powerful narrative tool, but it it's at its most powerful when it leans into the improvisation and the creativity of its players, because my, my general attitude about theming, and I could, I could talk for hours about the theming strategy and oath um, is to provide players with tools, but as few guardrails as possible. I want the players to be the creative force behind the game. And it's, I'm like, I'm, I'm a prop man in all of this. Like I'm just trying to make sure that the prop that they have props that, that, that open up areas and not close things down. And so one of the things that you see in like, and I think, you know, there's a very, I want to read the think piece about Dune versus the King's Dilemma. Because both games are trying to tell similar kinds of stories, but they have diametrically opposed strategies about how to tell those stories. And I think one of the things that happens I think that it isn't that one method is better than the other. I think that they have different risk profiles and different rewards. Mm -hmm. And the short version is that the on rails approach of the King's dilemma is a lot more even Mm -hmm. do. I have played a lot of bad games of Dune where the two leading players were like, shy halud, let's ally. Okay. The game's over. Yeah. Well, that was horrible. Right. But there are some games of Dune that I will remember for as long as I can remember things that are just absolutely incredible. And the King's dilemma kind of slides in the middle, right? You know, the, the, it has a couple of fiarios, a couple of those turn moments that are brilliant, but fundamentally it, it, it is cleverer than, than, than the players or it, that's its approach. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Dune and Peter Laka and the rest of the Eon crew, they're so good at like, this is a framework, go wild. So, and I'll just say this kind of briefly that, uh, for the people who backed Oath on Kickstarter, not to, this is a sales pitch, although depending on when this goes up, you can still back it uh, for, for late backers. But we, we included this little Chronicle journal. I wish I had my, my little prototype here. I could show you. It was a fun thing to design because we designed the Chronicle journal with no instructions. We kind of like designed a page layout. We designed in papers. We will put some guidelines up on our website for people who want it. But when we were building it, I was like, I don't know how people are going to use this. I don't even know if they're going to. And it was so funny because uh, we, we, you know, we have a rule with it, which is like the winner of the game gets to write the page, gets to tell what happened in that game. Uh, that was kind of the, the conceit behind, behind the thing. And we didn't really test it in the wild that much. We kind of couldn't. But I, I had one with me while I was uh, home over the summer for a little bit and playing the game with a few different groups. And they w- did all sorts of crazy things with this book. One person like wrote a comic. They, they were, they were like, right. They were doing all like just weird work. And, you know, w- you know, it, it was funny because the, the end papers are supposed to be like a list of Kings, like a, like a, uh, you know, ancient Egypt, like a, like a chronicle of Kings. And so you, you write who the winners are, you know, and then someone, thought that it looked like a yearbook page and they wrote like little like see you see you next game like and it was kind of wonderful because it was like oh well they're doing graffiti like you know it's all you know it's still in in the mode and i don't know if folks are going to use that so uh right now we're in a really funny stage with oath where like the game's done it's in production and what we're doing right now because i have a little bit of creative budget left in terms of like staffing is we're just building tools 
Mm-hmm. So we're building like card databases, places where you can upload your games, you know, really cool FAQ, some other things. And we don't know if people are going to use any of it. But we just kind of thought like, let's build a suite of tools and we'll just see what people do. <laughs> I'm going to back it's it now. I, mean, that's, yes. that's I, got, I got one. <laughs> uh, I'm trying not to get excited about it, but yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's it, it's, it, it's its own. I don't know. It Like, here's the thing about it though. it It is both like a very simple game, but also a game that uh, I beseech you to please use our card-driven walkthrough because I have seen teaches of oath like crash and burn because there is so like root gives you a little breadcrumb path. It's like, Hey, do this. You'll get a point and you'll get this. So it's pretty easy, even though root can be sometimes a hard teach. Once it, once it lifts off the plane will kind of like slowly gain altitude and oath the, the base rules, like the core rules of like how you move, how you get cards, how you get resources, very easy, could fit on a page, super straightforward. But then the question of how you win is like the, you know, the gift that keeps zooming into the eye because th- there's no guidance and you can really m- m- mess it up. And so what will happen when, when players teach it badly is they'll start being like, well, okay, like last game, so someone will be like, what, what should I do? And then they'll be like, well, last game I, I did this and I won and I started doing these things and they're giving like horrible advice. Um, but, but they don't know it. So like, I usually tell folks like use the walkthrough. It's so it like, it will, it will get you there. It will get you there. Um, it's a little bit of a hard teach, but, uh, it's not a hard game. I mean, it is a hard game. It, it's, I don't know. I have no idea how well this game is going to do, but it, um, I think it's important to go into it with kind of like an open, you know, like it, it ain't root. And it ain't PAX Premier. It's its own thing. I was one more like little note on root. I uh, see this is what I'm about going on. When I started Oath, it was kind of like like pa- like uh, root was sort of like accessible coin to mm-hmm. you know like thinking about like Voco's work on Andy and Abyss and other games and like can you do that in a different setting? And then root kind of like came from that mulling, and uh, Oath came from this mulling where I was thinking about PAX games and trying to do them in a different setting. But Oath is not really like an accessible PAX game. Like get PAX Premier uh, or maybe PAX Viking. I haven't played PAX Viking. Like those are the good entry levels to PAX games. Mm-hmm. What Oath is, is an accessible version of these very weird games that Phil Eklund made in the 90s called the Lords Games. Oh, yeah. And so the Lords Games are these like epic, like 10 hour, like just unbelievable designs that don't really work, but their ambition is so great and the, the heat they put off is so strong that you just can't help but be charmed by them. At least I, I can't help. And in some ways, the PAX games were an attempt to boil that experience down. But I love the PAX games, yeah. but I think that they fundamentally are not like the Lord's games. You're right. And they, they kind of like boiled it down in a different way. And Oath is like a weird attempt to boil it down. And it's a different way of attacking that same problem. And it, in that way, I'm like, okay, that's what Oath is doing. Now, that is not a line I can put on a Kickstarter because no one's going to like, okay, hey, you guys remember those 90s games that came in Ziploc? Bet? You know, like, this is a bad, it's a bad pitch. Uh, and so, you know, that's why it's, it's the game that remembers. We need something that's, like, crisp and simple that people can latch on to. Um, but it's, uh, I, so I, I don't know. I don't know how, 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 how it will do, but I'm excited for people to play it because – Everyone on the team, we spent a crazy amount of time on this game, like a year and a half with a full creative staff. Like it has, so, there's so much stuff in that box. And 
we just want people to get into it. And so I'm happy for any and all reviews when, when they start rolling. I'll have to tag you in it well, for, yeah, my, please. for my wife's account. Cause yeah, um, yeah. Of, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I only do Twitter because I still get more Twitter still more fun than it is psychologically. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I keep there, but the other places I'm, I'm out. Oh yeah. No. Yeah, that's right. I, I can't use Twitter because um, I, I'm a Luddite. I just, I, I, I look at it and I'm like, what's the order of these things? It's a very reasonable, like, I, I, uh, there was a book I read in grad school by Eli Pariser called the filter bubble, which is just prophetic. And it's entirely about like what it means for an algorithm to arrange content for you and the kinds of behavior it encourages. And it is a book. It is a, it is a read where you're like, wow, this boy, I wish everybody had to read this book in high school. Um, and it makes me so suspicious. So like we're, you know, we are very like free range parents. I let my kids wander around. They're very like, you know, wild and rambunctious, but, and and if they want to, if they want to watch a weird movie or if they want to like, you know, play a hard game or whatever, like I'm, or, or read like a, you know, I read like a few chapters of Watership down to them. Like they're not closeted kids, but they are absolutely not allowed on YouTube. It is the, the, like I am terrified of it. Because there'll be moments where, where like they'll accidentally like have someone's phone and then like they'll get three videos in and I'm like, Oh, oh no, no, no. Yeah. Like this is, this is the worst thing to put in your mind. I can't do it. And you know, I, it is, I, I recognize that this is like me as a parent, other parents are gonna have different priorities. There's no right way to do it. But that is my biggest fear. Like algorithm. Like I, I don't want, I don't want, this is, I'm a, I sound like a tin, a tin capper, but like, I just don't want the algorithm jacking with their mind. I want to be the editors of their mind for just like a little bit longer. Yeah. That makes I sense. want to be the, the curators. That's the better word. Yeah. We, we highly, highly moderate uh, YouTube consumption in the house. Yeah. It, it, but it's it, still it, like, but there's a hard rule. You skip every single ad. Cause I'm oh, not yeah. paying for premium. But if I see her, see her watching ads, I'm like, yeah, get, get that out there. Yeah, we, we we have a few exceptions. My my older son used to be obsessed with model trains, so we'd watch like some of the model train YouTube, which is a good YouTube dive. <laughs> yeah, I watch a lot of the modeling YouTube. And oh yeah, sure. Modelers are train modelers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. That was a great conversation. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the season one finale of Board Again Games with special guest Cole Worley. Join us for season two where we discuss even more tabletop fun, including role playing and miniature painting and lots of other things that we're excited to share with you. Happy gaming until next season. Mm-hmm.